Lord has given me a gift. Only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Hello, and welcome back to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. I'm your host, Mike Scott, on this movie-by-movie journey through the career of one of the most exciting action stars of all time. As I said last episode, we're skipping over Extreme Challenge for just a bit, but it will be coming back soon. We're going to deal with it in a couple of episodes. Instead, this week, we're looking at 2002's Choi Hawk-directed Black Mass 2's City of Masks, starring Andy On with choreography by Yuan Wuping and several members of the Yuan clan, written by Choi, Julian Carbon, and Laurent Cotillard, Dirk Blackman, and Charles Kane. Adkins appears and unlike Accidental Spy, he's actually a named character and, in fact, is the primary villain of the film, the evil Dr. Lang. If you want to check out Black Mass 2 before listening, as of recording, it's streaming for free on the sister streaming services Asian Crush and Midnight Pulp. The film is free, but ad-supported. I highly recommend both services if you're into weird cinema or classic Asian films. I dig them, and no, they're not a sponsor, but hey, guys, I can easily be bought. I'll sell out for a bottle of decent whiskey. Now, I'm not a big fan of this movie. In fact, it's one of the more difficult ones for me to watch. But I hate, 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 hate being negative about movies. I think all movies have some value. So I called in a ringer. After some background on the film, I'll be welcoming on Rob Dean, a writer for Daily Grindhouse as well as several other sites, and just all-around good dude. Rob's a fan of the film, so we'll talk the movie, and I'm going to try and see it through his eyes. But first, what's the skinny on Black Mask 2? Ready to Stage 5 mutation. A genetic experiment. There was never supposed to be a full transformation. Has unlocked the darkest side of humanity. The level of transformation is perfect. You're a liar! And unleashed an evil we never expected. Now. Black Mask is here. The most powerful warrior on Earth. He has decided to use his powers for the good of others. Must find the cure. Bring him back to me. Alive. Before he crosses over. You're one of us, Khan! You'll always be one of us! We will get revenge. This is between me and him. From the martial arts director of The Matrix and legendary master action stylist, director Choi Hawk. Terminal mutation in 44 hours and 7 minutes. You're mine. I am not a monster. Black Mask was a 1996 action film produced by Choi and directed by Daniel Lee and starring Jet Li. Lee plays a librarian who in reality is a super soldier trying to stop his former super soldier teammates who've gone on a violent crime spree. 
It's a nice homage to the Green Hornet because Lee wears a domino mask and a chauffeur's cap. Black Mask was a hit and got imported to the U.S. in a redubbed and cut version, of course, in 1999. Lee is essentially playing a superhero as the Black Mask cannot feel pain and has enhanced fighting abilities. He's kind of like a Chinese Captain America. With fight choreography by Yuan Wuping and featuring appearances by Hong Kong stars Lao Ching Wong, Anthony Wong, Karen Mock, and Francois Yip, Black Mask is a damn good time and one of Jet Li's best. It's no surprise that Choi wanted to make a sequel. However, Lee was firmly ensconced in American films by that time, having appeared in Lethal Weapon 4 and starred in Romeo Must Die, Kiss of the Dragon, and The One. He wasn't coming back for Black Mask 2. He did return for 2002's Hero, but let's be honest, that's an all-time masterpiece of martial arts cinema. Black Mask 2 isn't. We'll be talking more about Jet Li when we get to Unleashed a few episodes down the road. Black Mask 2 is largely unrelated to the original. It finds the mask, now played by newcomer Andy Ahn, trying to cure his super soldier powers while continuing to fight crime. He encounters a group of wrestlers who've been turned into animal-human hybrids by Dr. Moloch, played by Jigsaw himself, Tobin Bell. Black Mask must fight the wrestlers as they blame him for the death of one of their own. Meanwhile, Adkins' Dr. Lang is tracking down Black Mask to bring him back to his old team. The film involves On fighting a lot of early 2000s CGI effects and generally failing to create the screen presence that Jet Li so effortlessly has. I'll talk more with Rob, but there's some fun to be had here, and I did enjoy it more this time than when I saw it in 2003, but it was still a bit of a rough go for me. The entire middle act of the film is just a slog and lacks any Adkins to keep my attention. As always, I like to reference Ross Chen, a.k.a. Kozu, of Love HK Film when I talk about these movies, and here's what he had to say. I'll link to his full article in the show notes. The long-delayed sequel to the 1996 Jet Li film arrives without Jet Li, but with Choi Hawk at the helm. The result is a bizarre comic book movie which has flashes of entertaining action and some nifty visuals. It's also soulless and annoyingly silly, with crappy effects and even crappier acting. Choi Hawk please make good movies again. This is a bizarre B-movie where everything is so outlandish and the script so completely leaden that it's nearly impossible to connect to anything happening in the film. Is this really from the guy that made Peking Opera Blues? I can't say it any better than Kozu did there. This is truly something else from one of the all-time masters. Much like Jackie Chan last episode, Choi Hawk is worthy of an entire podcast series on his career. For those unfamiliar, Choi can best be described as the father of the Hong Kong new wave that began in the 80s. Often described as the Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong, he wrote, directed, or produced damn near every majorly influential Hong Kong film from the period. He directed Zoo Warriors from Magic Mountain, Once Upon a Time in China, which brought Jet Li to major fame, and the unbelievably brilliant Peking Opera Blues, among so many others. He also produced John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, widely credited as the film that kicked off the heroic bloodshed genre, as well as its sequel and Woo's masterpiece, The Killer. He produced Ching Siu Tung's martial arts ghost fantasy, A Chinese Ghost Story, 
and the Donnie Yen starring Dragon Inn and Yuan Wuping's Iron Monkey, arguably the greatest martial arts film of all time. In a time of tyranny and oppression, his justice comes in the silence before dawn. A champion of the poor, his compassion is equaled only by his courage. Hunted by a corrupt government, his anonymity protects a secret code known only to the woman whose love he shares. Now, as the forces of vengeance close in around him, he will forge an alliance with the one man he considers his equal. And together, they will risk everything to protect a child who will one day become a legend. Choi was John Ford and Jack Warner rolled into one. Or depending on your era, Jerry Bruckheimer and Tony Scott rolled into one. Given Choi's super stylized ways and love of cutting edge special effects, that actually might be a more apt comparison. Look, he's a big friggin' deal is what I'm saying. While I can't do justice to the man in the brief time we have, what I can do is focus on this rather strange period in his career. The late 90s, early 2000s were a fairly creatively fallow period for Choi. He had attempted to follow in the footsteps of contemporaries John Woo and Ringo Lam and break into the U.S. by teaming up with Jean-Claude Van Damme. However, the two films he made with Van Damme, Double Team and Knock Off, lacked any of the depth Choi was known for in his HK films, and they also lacked the distinct identities that Woo brought to Hard Target and Lam brought to Maximum Risk. I love both movies to death, but there's no argument they're a far cry from Peking Opera Blues. So with that, Choi went back to Hong Kong, but it seemed to have rattled a bit of his mojo. His first film upon returning is the modest actioner Time and Tide, which is quite frankly terrific and a throwback to his heroic bloodshed days. But his follow-up, Zoo Warriors, a remake of his own Zoo Warriors from Magic Mountain, was a bloated special effects spectacle that lacked even 10% of the charm and depth of the 1983 original. He then made Black Mask 2. Choi would rebound after Black Mask 2 with the absolutely stunning epic Seven Swords and would establish himself as one of the premier large-scale directors in China with the Detective D series and the awesome taking of Tiger Mountain. Choi's career has been filled with some of the biggest all-time classics in Chinese cinema. The man is a certified legend. He also has some serious low points. Black Mask 2 is the debut of Asian-American actor Andy On. This is taken from his bio on Wikipedia. Quote, a non-martial artist, Andy has always loved Jackie Chan movies and emulated his movies from flips and kicks at his home. In early 2000, while working as a bartender in Rhode Island, someone suggested he should become an actor. Andy, who didn't like the bartending job anyway, decided to go with his gut and head for Hong Kong to begin his career. He was approached by China Star founder Charles Hung and world-renowned filmmaker Choi Hawk to take over the role of one of Jet Li's most famous characters, Black Mask, in Black Mask 2, City of Masks. Andy went on to the Shaolin Temple to train for a month in stretching and martial arts for the role. In spite of the critical and commercial failure of Black Mass 2, On would continue on, eventually getting cast in Jackie Chan's new police story, 
In my opinion, he would actually develop into one of the most dependable actors in recent Hong Kong cinema, starring in solid action films like Benny Chan's Invisible Target, Yuan Wu Ping's True Legend, the Donnie Yen starring Special ID, and one of my favorites, Dante Lam's riveting sports drama Unbeatable. In spite of some inauspicious beginnings, On has become an actor who genuinely excites me when I see him in a movie. His fluency in both English and Mandarin also allows him to seamlessly shift between Chinese and U.S. productions, including him appearing in Michael Mann's Black Hat in 2015. In 2019, On would actually re-team with Adkins for the ridiculously weird and fun Abduction, a movie we'll obviously be covering much later in this podcast. I'll also be revisiting On's career at that point, so I'll just leave it at, regardless of what you think of this film, you know what? He's cool. You should check out more of his movies. I would be remiss not to at least mention some of the actors playing the wrestlers, starting with ECW legend Rob Van Dam playing Claw and the legendary and infamous Tracy Lords playing Chameleon. There are others played by Tyler Maine of X-Men and Rob Zombie's Halloween fame, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remakes Andrew Brynarski, Bone Tomahawk's Robert Allen Mukes, Strikeback's Oris Urhero, and frequent heavy Michael Bailey Smith, whose credits are far too numerous to mention. I will say, this movie has one hell of a cast. It shows the reputation Choi has that so many people were eager to work with him. I'm going to save a deeper dive on the Yun clan, and in particular Yun Wuping, for a later episode, and we'll just say that they are Chinese action legends. Yun Wuping was just coming off the Matrix sequels, and while this film is far from his best, that would be the aforementioned Iron Monkey, he does manage to craft some clever and creative fight scenes in this one. Writers Carbon and Cotriard have previously written the absolutely great Johnny Toe film, Running Out of Time, one of my very favorite Chinese films, as well as the Michelle Yeoh starring The Touch. Blackman would go on to write the underseen and underappreciated sci-fi Beowulf film Outlander and Underworld Rise of the Lycans. Most recently, he wrote the DTV sequel Deep Blue Sea 3. This is a major role for Adkins, and as he's had up to this point, and will many times in the future, he plays the villain. According to Kozu, since Black Mask 2 was actually filmed in English, it was released in China with a Cantonese dub featuring several Hong Kong celebrities. Lang, Adkins' character, was actually dubbed by Young and Dangerous' Jordan Chan. Other celebrity voices include Cecilia Chung, Lao Ching Wan, and Louis Koo. The version I watched was the U.S. version with the original actors, which means we get to hear Adkins for more than a few lines in the movie for the first time. So how is the man? Well, I'll admit, I'm biased, but I found him by far the most entertaining part of the movie. Sporting a bald head and a soul patch coupled with the most ridiculous steampunk goggles, he looks like a villain out of a 30s pulp sci-fi comic. He also seems to be one of the only ones who fully appreciates the type of movie he's in. All of the actors are going over the top, but Adkins is the only one who seems to be doing it intentionally while still having fun. The other actors somehow manage to be over the top and deadly earnest at the same time. It's a bad combination. Enough for me though, it's time to bring on our guest and really dig into Black Mask 2 City of Masks. So what are we waiting for? Bring me your fucking champion. All right, 
Ladies and gentlemen, I am so ecstatic to have my guest for this movie, this episode. He's been a Twitter friend of mine for a while. He has, even before we were Twitter friends, he was somebody that I followed. He writes for Daily Grindhouse. He writes for a a slew of outlets. The dude is one of my go-to horror guys for anything. If he recommends a movie, I typically am just going to watch it. If you follow him on Twitter, you know him as uh, at Neurotic Monkey. Rob Dean. Rob, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you, man. Thank you so much. I feel like you really built me up to fail, but that's okay. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm very uh, happy to be here and happy to discuss Black Mask 2, City of Masks. <laughs> the lovely thing about having my own show is I have all these people that I've looked up to and I get to bring them on the show. And then, yeah, essentially just fill them up with uh, with platitudes. So, you know, it's uh, <laughs> you're not set up to fail, though, man. You're going to live up to uh, exactly the promo. I know that. Huzzah. We are talking, as you said, Black Mask 2, City of Masks, which is... It's a movie. It's something. And... <laughs> And one of the reasons I wanted you on, Rob, is when I floated this one, you were the first to step into the fray and be like, well, is somebody talking about this movie? Because I've been pretty upfront in my intro and on Twitter. This is not one of my favorite movies. I don't want to lay my cards on the table, but I will say rewatching it for this, I did get more joy out of it than I did back in 2003 when I first watched it. Um, or 2001, whenever I first watched it. I got more joy out of it this go-round, but I wanted somebody who at least has some affinity for the movie to come on and talk about it. And so I appreciate you volunteering, man. Oh, I'm happy to. Uh, yeah, I, I will uh, just, with the stipulation, I know it's not like a good movie, but I think there's a lot of enjoyable stuff in it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean... If you if you were coming on and trying to argue that it was actually a good movie, I would be calling Health and Human Services down there in Texas to to come in and check on you. But just because like and anybody that follows me knows, look, just because it's not, quote unquote, good doesn't mean there's not joy to be found in something. And uh, this is a movie that's right in that in that area. All right, so Rob, I always start off with guests. I like to talk a little bit about their history with action films. When did you first kind of become an action movie fan? Uh, it was probably, you know, I was I'm, was born in 1982, so grew up with, like, the VHS generation, and then, you know, around that time with you know, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Seagal, uh, Van Damme, all those, ty- um, you know, bombastic types. I also really loved Enter the Dragon and, um, you know, the few Bruce Lee movies I can actually find um, uh, in my suburban uh, town in Massachusetts. So I really enjoy those. And I always thought they were usually, like, you know, really over the top. And I definitely kind of always dismissed them as not that deep or that, you know, thought out. But then as time moved on, I, I really noticed, like, the artistry involved like it just suddenly dawned on me that there was so much like choreography and there's so many like moving parts in a lot of the scenes. I was like, that's actually really impressive to be able to balance those out. And then you'd also, I also started picking up on a lot uh, more depth in some of the titles. I'm like, Oh, that's pretty smart. And you know, I think actually a big turning point was there's a documentary uh, has to be like mid nineties about Bruce Lee. And it's called uh, the dragon's journey. I think 
and uh, it has a lot of archival footage. And one of them is him talking about his philosophy about Game of Death, about what he was trying to say with that film. And I was like, that's really brilliant. So then uh, that basically kind of changed the way I would look at things and try to think of or recontextualize a lot of what I was watching into something that usually would resonate with me um, while still also enjoying, you know, explosions and kicks in the face. <laughs> so I think a, is it uh Bruce Lee, a warrior's journey? Is that the document That's where they, yeah. yeah, where they reconstructed his footage that he wanted for game of death. That is such a fantastic documentary. It's on, I wish it was on the new criterion Bruce Lee box set. It's not, but it is right. on the Warner brothers enter the dragon Blu-ray. So I do really recommend people check that out. I love that you said that because for me, that is always the thing about action movies. The technical aspects, the the choreography mm-hmm. and the stunts and all of these things. Like there are movies that people watch and they think they're just so easy to pull off. And it's like, you know what? No. <laughs> little indie Sundance movie where two people are sitting in a bar talking about their failing (laughs) love lives is easy to pull off. Some of these, you know, somebody doing a Giver kick is not a simple thing to do. And, uh, and that's why I love action movies because there's so much technical, there's such a technical aspect to them that I think makes them so enjoyable. It's why I love, like musicals and dance movies. You know, I've argued for a long I've argued for a long time that the step up movies are basically martial arts movies only with dancing, but they really follow the same formula and they have the same aspect. Absolutely. I legitimately uh I love well I love uh 3 through 5 are the ones I really like. One not so much so I'm like this is kind of just dirty dancing. Um but the other ones um you know a lot of ones by uh, John Chu and stuff are really like dynamic and really interesting and have like actual giant set pieces that like you said has a lot of choreography i think it's edgar wright who was the first time i ever heard this expressed but i think it's like a well-known idea um edgar wright was talking about in when he was making scott pilgrim that in uh, musicals you know when emotions get so high they break into song or dance you know they're basically like oh i can't contain this anymore so this is how i break out and you know whatever it is a uh, classic big studio musicals even some bollywood uh, titles and then in action it's usually the same thing it's usually ramping up then there's literally explosions and these over-the-top stunts and sequences so he always compared the two he's like yeah why not have them both and then in scott pilgrim you know he basically combined that yeah and i mean i think he even takes that a little farther even though i i think the movie's less good than scott pilgrim he basically almost even takes that farther in baby driver right it's the yeah. same concept the music and the dancing and the action it's all it's all of a kind and Mm -hmm. and i'm with you i think step up three four and five are (laughs) god damn those folks if you like action movies and you have shunned the step up movies especially three four and five you're really missing out because they're (laughs) just absolutely terrific you know the end of i don't want to go off too far on a tangent about step up on a scott atkins (laughs) podcast but the final dance scene in step up four where they've got you know a bunch of different styles and a bunch of different things and they bring in all the people from the previous movies and man that is as good as any last fight in a martial arts movie i have ever seen in my life 
Yeah, it's like uh, basically sending it when they send out like waves after waves of people, and you know the main the hero has to take each of them on, or they each have like a different style. It, yeah, it's really brilliantly done. And the other part of it that works is the drama or the story plot part isn't always that strong, but it's usually like mildly funny because it's kind of either obvious or slightly inept. And so even if you're like not totally engaged or just seeing for the sequences, you're entertained through actually like, oh, that's funny. But then you reconnect when it has those dance sequences and you actually get uh, invested emotionally once again because of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, dance movies and martial arts movies are so (laughs) intertwined. And, you know, I... He's not on the show. If he ever wants to come on the show, I would be happy to have him on the show, obviously. But I have a feeling that Scott would probably agree with us, agree with us on that. You know, he he has a gymnastics background. He He's such a multifaceted actor that I don't think it would surprise him that we say that because I think he would probably agree with us on that. Definitely. And, you know, uh, Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung both when they started out or their training was in um, a lot of musicals as like they had to know uh, dance and performances um, while getting like beaten essentially by their teachers and then also learn uh, martial arts at the same time. So they did bring that sensibility into a lot of what they were making at that time too. Well, and there's actually, so as the, the time we're recording this Netflix just dropped one of my all time favorite action TV movie music crossover series a Japanese series called High and Low, where all the stars are musicians and dancers from this Japanese pop supergroup, Exile, Exile Tribe, basically. And I won't get too deep into it, but most of the people in it are not particularly trained martial artists. They're dancers. But I will tell you, Rob, if you haven't watched it, it's got some of the best goddamn fight scenes you're ever going to see. And it's because I do think dancers at least for film fighting, we're not talking about you getting a fight in a bar, but for <laughs> film fighting, I think dancers make pretty terrific martial arts stars. And yeah. this series high and low really does just drive that point home because God, the fights are terrific in it. Awesome. No, I hadn't heard of it. So I'm now pretty pumped to get to watch something I hadn't heard of and sounds pretty amazing. Sounds like the best of both worlds. Like step up, but it it, it really is. So I'm only going to spend a minute on this, but so this group <laughs> exile tribe, they created this multimedia onslaught. They have this series high and low that started as a TV show. And then they turned it into movies, but there's also albums. They did a live concert tour. It's totally that combination of step up and, martial arts movies and, and action movies. And it's unlike anything I think we've ever seen in the U S which I think makes it fascinating. It's almost like if the backstreet boys decided to make the John wick series, that's really, if like, if like Nick Carter decided to be John wick, that's kind of what we've got in it. And that's just not something that's ever going to happen here in the U S that could only happen in Japan. And so, like I said, it's on Netflix in the U.S. It's totally worth checking out. We did have Cool as Ice. I mean, did it work? No, but we had it. The closest I think we've got is Tretch from Naughty by Nature became an action star (laughs) there for a while. And he was legit. He was good. He had the moves. But his movies, unfortunately, were so low budget and not very good. But I think I kind of feel like maybe that's the closest we've ever gotten here in the U.S. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Or yeah, or they rarely would have them uh, have anyone that was a musician incorporate their music or incorporate any of their dancing. Just be like, oh, and Sticky Fingers is in this. All right, <laughs> like just doing something. All right. You you grew up growing up, you know, watching action movies. When mm-hmm. did you first discover our boy Scott Adkins? I think the first time I noticed him or was very aware of him uh, was in Expendables 2. I'm not a big fan of that series overall, but Expendables 2 has uh, a great Jean-Claude Van Damme performance as villain, which is great. And then Scott Atkins is his right-hand man. And I was just like, this guy is really good. He can keep up with everyone else and actually has you know a lot of tons of moves. And then I also, uh, fairly close to then, saw Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. And because basically I've just seen online that people are like, what is this? It's like people were very befuddled by it. I was like, it's, and I was like, it's just a directive video. It's cool. Then I watched it. I was like, this is an art house action movie. But the closest thing is only God forgives, except that this is slightly uh, more coherent. So I was just blown away. And I thought he was very charismatic and very dynamic. So then I saw it out. Um, then I also looked at like John Hyam's work and uh, Isaac Florentine's work and kind of dove into that area. Found like Undisputed 3 and Undisputed 2, which I didn't know existed. I, knew, I saw Undisputed, but I know the sequels existed. And I saw like Ninja, those two Ninja movies, I think. And then I've seen other ones. And then I realized that he's been in a bunch of stuff that I'd seen, but I just didn't connect the dots for some reason. Like I didn't realize that he was Deadpool at the end of X-Men Origins, which we shan't talk about. Or like when he was in like Unleashed or Bullard Ultimatum. Like it's just for some reason, I never connected those things. I was like, wait, that is the same guy. Yeah, and that's, I mean, we'll get into the movie we're talking about today, but the mm-hmm. movie, you know, Black Mass 2 is a perfect example, right? Like, I saw Black Mass 2 when it came out. I obviously didn't know who he was at that mm-hmm. point. I love that you brought up both Expendables and Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. So Expendables 2 was one for me. I was already a little bit on the Adkins. I, well, I wasn't, a, I was a lot on, so I was super stoked that he got to be in this major Hollywood movie and yeah, with Van Damme and you're right. I, I mean, folks, we're going to be covering Expendables two down the road. But <laughs> I love Van Damme in that he's so mm-hmm. just absolutely fantastic in that movie. And Adkins unfortunately was injured when he was filming it. So I feel like the fight between him and Jason Statham isn't as good as I wanted it to be, but I still think it's a pretty terrific fight. I mean, you're watching yeah. two of the best action stars ever go at it. That's not nothing. Absolutely. And yeah, it did, like I said, like it carries forward that he was able to hold his own. It wasn't, you know, with a lot of um, action movies from, you know, the 80s, 90s to today, like oftentimes the uh, second banana or the henchman, the lead henchman isn't really a, rem- a memorable character or unless they have like something very, like odd about them. It's like, Oh, he has a robot arm. Okay. I'll remember that. But mostly they just don't you just know that like they're angry or like they're tough. Uh, but Atkins just kind of stood out. And I also like that. How it was used in that film was that Van Damme would basically have Atkins do stuff. And he'd like, you take care of it. And it's just funny because you're like, Oh, Van Damme can do this, but he's having someone else do it. So just, again, that was just one of the things I was like, like there's a sense of just allowing someone else to have a spotlight for a moment, which is odd in the, those movies because, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, strong personalities up there. Well, and that's what's amazing is like, say what you will about Stallone. I 
particularly really enjoy Expendables 2, but I'm not the biggest fan of the Expendables series. But say yeah. what you will about Stallone. He knew talent. I mean, he brought Gary Daniels in for the first one. like, And he did give them at least their time in the spotlight in those movies. For as much of an eomaniac as he is, he 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 let them show off quite a bit. Uh, I can't complain about that. Yeah, definitely. There was a sense... Uh, there was a sense that he was like, well, everyone should have a time. Like, all my friends should have a time to shine, and anyone that we're bringing up with us should also... We should give them a chance as well. So I think that that was very impressive and unexpected from, like I said, from that group. You'd be like, oh, really? Okay, that's nice. And then I also love that you brought up Day of Reckoning, which is for sure a show we or a movie we'll be covering. Yeah, I describe that movie as a... Lynchian horror martial arts action movie. I mean, it's so unlike any movie that you will ever see. John, what John Hyams is doing in that movie is just bananas because it's like you watch it and you're like, okay, this guy, he wants to make this surreal horror movie and he's going to just do some action stuff because it's Universal Soldier. And then you get to the action scenes and you're like, Holy shit, these are some of the best. Like, he doesn't fuck around on the action scenes either. He's just like, nope, I'm also going to show you some of the best action you've ever seen before, too. God, I love John Hyams, man. I love him so much. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, like I said, one of the things that really stood out, obviously, is the style behind it. Um, the fact that it's essentially Heart of Darkness for psychotronic uh, action sequences is amazing. Again, like, what works, and something else I think about it, action movies that people kind of dismiss is that it really almost all of them that are successful uh, usually rests on the lead or, you know, the main, one of the main characters to carry it because you have to be likable or you have to care about them somehow, or, you know, just be impressed by their abilities, whatever. There has to be some charisma that connects with an audience. Cause usually it's an over the top situation or, you know, it, it's just easy to kind of gloss over. And that's where I think in um, day of reckoning more than expendables too was that I realized, oh, Scott Atkins like, has this thing because he's very like emotionally distraught in it and has to play a bunch of different ways. So that's when I was like, oh, this guy's very talented in terms of martial arts, but also he can act, which is always a nice you know one-two punch. Was that a pun? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. I mean, that's been you know one of my sort of theses with this show is that he wanted to break in as an actor. He considers himself an actor first, and like an action star second. And Hyams really knew how to use that. He really knew how mm -hmm. to, to tie into him. And I just, I think Hyams is terrific. Obviously we'll talk, I'll talk about him later on in a later episode, but while we're on it and because it's on my mind, have you seen alone yet? I did. I was very impressed by it. And I didn't know he directed it until like I started watching it. I was like, wait, what? And I was super. Then I was like, all right, this is going to be something special. And it was. Yeah, it's one of the best movies I've seen in 2020. I just, I really, I'm, I, Hyams now has earned my sort of badge of, I see his name on a movie, I'm going to watch it. I don't care what it is. I don't care what the plot is. I don't care what the trailer looks like. If I see John Hyams on it, I'm going to check it out because I think he's, he's earned that. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's very accomplished. And it's proven that he's able to do a bunch of different genres, different types. He did a lot of TV work after uh, Day of Reckoning. So, yeah, I he is definitely one of those people that I'm like, okay, I will check it out because he's going to bring something 
he loves working in genre scenes, but he also likes kind of tweaking it in different ways that are not expected. Yeah, it's almost like he picks a genre and then he's like, okay, so now how can I like fuck this up? Like, nah, not in a bad yeah. way, but how can I like yeah. make you think you're going to watch some standard DTV sequel to an action movie and I'm going to blow your mind or you're going to watch a survival horror thriller that we've seen a thousand times before and I'm going to take it in these different directions. Like, I love, I love that he does that. Yeah. It's incredibly impressive. All right. So the sort of final lead in that I've got here is this movie is directed by, and folks, I'm going to, I'm going to just put this disclaimer out there. Rob and I are both unbelievably white. Like, like, like if we were any whiter, we would probably be transparent. (laughs) And so when we are pronouncing names on this, uh, bear with us. I pronounce it this way because that's actually how I've heard it pronounced by, of all people, Rob Schneider, uh, who starred in not co-starred in knockoff. He pronounced it this way. I'm going to pronounce it Choi Hawk. Uh, I know there are other pronunciations there. If you are a Cantonese speaker and you want to correct me on how it's properly pronounced, by all means, please reach out to me. Let me know because I, I've been pronouncing it this way for years and I, if I'm wrong, I would like to know. But, Rob, what is your history with Choi Hawk? Because he is kind of a big fucking deal. He is. Um, he was one of the uh, directors that Van Damme, like Van Damme, for all of his issues and you know inconsistencies, Van Damme really fought for the Hong Kong directors to come over into the West and like you know work on his stuff just really admirable. It didn't always work out. And then he would try and recut the movies. So it was odd. He's like, I really want this director, but I want to do it my way. Like, okay. So uh, I think I first like was aware of it with once upon a time in China and then double team, which I didn't realize was the same person. Again, I wasn't like, Oh, that's the same thing. And then Z warriors, uh, knockoff. And the other element that really made me seek out the rest of his work was in the documentary about the a Nightmare on Elm Street uh, series called Never Sleep Again. Uh, Rennie Harlan is, you know, one people speaking. It's talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And he said one of his major style influences and what he really wanted to bring was from a Chinese ghost story. Um, he wanted to bring that into a lot of the sequences, specifically, you know, the ending fight uh, between Freddy and um, Alice. So I think, and I was like, oh, like, that's really intriguing. And I couldn't find... Like a Chinese ghost story, I think still in Region A is really hard to find. When I did track it down, I was like, this is really impressive. Like, it's just visually so uh, brilliant. The comedy doesn't always work, but it's still just so imaginative and uh, just operatic. And then so from there, I looked at, you know, found the other Once Upon a Time in China series, or right? uh, Twin Dragons, the Detective D movies, uh, his sequel to Stephen Chow's uh, Journey to the West. Um, so, yeah, I've. Really do enjoy that. And uh, I should point out that I love Double Team, like more than Black Mass 2. And I know that now everyone's like, okay, we don't, we will not trust his opinion on movies. So I'm like, I get that. But- In- incorrect, <laughs> because I too love Double Team. And so, <laughs> like, we may not necessarily see eye to eye on this movie, but I too love <laughs> Double Team, my friend. And I will go to bat, I will walk through the gates of hell <laughs> with you. Defending Double Team. I fucking love that movie. Yeah, and a lot of things about it, like Black Black Mass 2 uh, feels kind of like a dry run in many ways. Um, 
obviously not with the sci-fi element, although kind of, uh, but basically it's, it's this idea of this like over the top, completely operatic, um, bombastic, just insane sequences. And then like almost an intentionally overly convoluted plot and like setups and you're like, no, this really like, how would those things all come together? And like, it just is weird. And it just seems like basically, you know, uh, Chohawk basically took stuff that he's like, Oh, I want to see this on the screen. And then he like had a list and they were like, well, what would connect those things? Like, I don't, I don't know, figure something out. And then that was what makes it, you know, very entertaining and uh, really engaging. For those who, you know, you heard in the intro, I called him basically the Spielberg of Hong Kong. And that's because mm-hmm. he is. I mean, he's such a monumental figure in Hong Kong cinema. You got your, you got sort of your Hong Kong Mount Rushmore, which would be like John Woo and Jackie Chan. And certainly Choi Hawk is, is kind of, I think, the mountain that stands above all of them because... John Woo doesn't exist without Choi Hawk. You know, he produced and helped get A Better Tomorrow made. And he opened the door for Jackie Chan. And, you know, his his movie, The Butterfly Murders, kind of opened the door for Sammo Hung to do Close Encounters of the Spooky Kind. Like, the Hong Kong new wave goes through Choi Hawk. Um, Rob, I I was going to ask you, have you seen Peking? It's pretty hard to come by but have you seen Peking opera blues i haven't uh i was reading about it before prep for this podcast and i was like i this sounds amazing so i'm very curious about it so i'm going to try to seek it seek it out very soon somehow i will track you down it is unbelievable it and once upon a time in china and in particular once upon a time in china too are really just the pinnacle of of what Choi hawk could do it is a bit weird that we get this kind of a we get a series of Van Damme movies, you know, we get Double Team and Knockoff, but then we also get this sort of weird one. But one of the things that he kind of did is he he was one of the early adopters of technology. He was one of the early adopters of CGI. He was one of the early adopters of 3D, and I think that's part of why we get kind of what we get with Black Mass 2. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of I would say he's like a combination of uh, Spielberg and George Lucas and so much that like Spielberg basically, or any of the film brats, you know, the Coppola, Spielberg, uh, Lucas, and De Palma, they basically all love to bring their references or the movies that they love. You know, they were essentially the second or third generation of filmmakers. And so they brought all that stuff, but they also wanted to change it or make it reflect their own um, iterations of it. And then also with Lucas was always, you know, if you want to try this technology or that technology, you know, like sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. There was that aspect, I think, to Joy Hawk, which is uh, bringing stuff, uh, you know, uh, classic Wuxia elements and classic uh, mythology and legends, and then mashing up with a lot of modern techniques and even, yeah, modern uh, technology. Sometimes it works. I, I You mentioned the Detective D movies. I think those are yeah. all, by and large, pretty great. Uh, a, a more recent movie of his that I also really love is called The Taking of Tiger Mountain, which I Ooh. think is really good. And sometimes <laughs> it doesn't necessarily work so great. His, You know, you mentioned Zoo Warriors, his, his 1982 Zoo Warriors from Magic Mountain, which I think is a seminal Hong Kong movie. 
And then he mm-hmm. did sort of a legacy sequel to borrow Matt's Matt Singer's term, a legacy sequel <laughs> called Zoo Warriors that uh, is not uh, uh, as good. And so, <laughs> you know, he's he's a he's a fascinating director to me because mm-hmm. he's so all over the map. I don't know that I've ever seen a director who has made movies that I think are as brilliant as his best ones and are as bad as his worst ones. Yeah, well, he's always swinging for the fences. You know, if he's like, if I'm going to miss, it's going to be, it's going to be one of those like strikeouts where you just like are spinning around and then follow, or it's going to be a grand slam. It's like, I have no middle gear. It's these, one of these two. That's it. Yeah, you're totally right. Cause I've, I've long said that there are certain movies that are the kind of bad movies that only really brilliant artists can make. And mm-hmm. I would certainly say that I think the bad Choi Hawk movies are that. They're the kind of bad movies that only somebody of his brilliance could actually make because he is swinging for the fences. And when you swing for the fences, sometimes you're just going to fucking whiff. <laughs> you're just going to whiff and miss the ball completely. Um, but that's, I, I would still take that over, you know, somebody who's just going to go middle of the road the entire way that they make, you know, their, their entire career goes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, paint by numbers in some, uh, directors and those are like fine movies that don't really engage you or you just happen to turn on, you know, on like TNT some afternoon, like, all right. This is not offensive or engaging, but it's on. And uh, I, I do think uh, Trehawk basically is one of those people that's going to put in a lot of passion and ambition. And even in its failures, you're kind of left like flabbergasted. You're like, wait, like why would he think that would work? But you know that there was a lot of thought put into it, and yet it, what came out was pure insanity. So, so it's very curious what his process was. Yeah, I mean, I love that we get – I get these two episodes back to back because, you know, last week's episode on Accidental Spy, which mm-hmm. is completely, you know, Teddy Chan is a completely middle of the road director. I think he's got one great movie in Kung Fu Jungle, but for the most part, he's a completely middle of the road director. It's a very middle of the road, Jackie Chan. And mm-hmm. so we get last week this sort of very middle of the road movie. That is, in my opinion, still much better qualitatively than the movie we're talking about today. But on the flip side, it's a lot less interesting, too. You know, this is a much more interesting movie to me to kind of talk about than Accidental Spy, because this movie's bananas. And (laughs) and that's always something that I will check out. I will check out a bonkers movie over a middle of the road movie any day of the week. Uh, it's very memorable and there's stuff you'll talk about afterwards. So when it's just middle of the road movie, like, yeah, and this happens and you know how it goes when it's a bizarre, even failure, you want to find someone else that seems like, can you explain why this had like, it's also something where when you watch black mass too. You constantly feel like you li- you missed the scene. Like, was I not paying attention when this was explained or like why this is happening? So especially something like I kept rewinding, like, oh, I want to make sure I get this right. And I'm like, no, there was nothing. I didn't miss anything. Like they, they just jumped into this. All right, moving on then. And there's just, that stays with you because your, you know, your mind is trying to wrap itself around. Like, why 
would they choose to do this? Or like, why was no one saying, hey, that doesn't really make sense. But they just pushed ahead with that ambition and that passion. And that's what sticks with you, for good or worse. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example is I think we can all agree that, and I know that listeners will agree that Scott Adkins is a very, very good looking man. And Choi Hawk's <laughs> idea is to shave him bald, give him like the worst soul patch mustache combo, and put like these spirit Halloween store steampunk glasses on him. I've seen early Scott Adkins performances. He wasn't any less hot, <laughs> you know? And like Joy Hawk's idea is like, that's what I'm going to make him look like. And it's like, what is the thought process? Like what is our, it's very clearly he's trying to like make him look like some like 1950s Shazam villain. But it's like, you've also got Scott Adkins. Why are you burying him under all of this? It's, I want to be, behind the scenes on this movie. I want to hear the conversations that were happening on this movie. It would be a fascinating interview. Uh, that would be hard to not come off as like mildly in something, but just to do talk to, to like walk me through your process here. And um, it's just odd to you have, because you basically have this very chiseled, good looking face. And you're like, let's put a lot of shit on <laughs> that's weird and super distracting to look like Dr. Robotnik uh, meets Tom Hardy and Bronson. And that'll be great. <laughs> and for no reason, we will never explain any of it. And that's it. And so it's so bizarre. And I think that's why I, I saw this before I was aware of Scott Agnes. And then I was, that's another reason why I'd never commit to this. I was like, wait, that guy? It's like, he doesn't look okay. They put like giant, you cannot emphasize enough those weird steampunk goggles that sometimes gives him better vision and helps him track stuff. But doesn't that that's it? I mean, I I think we can you know we can probably transition into getting into the movie, but like, <laughs> there's just so many things in this movie because it's like in addition to that, it's like I know he's coming off his U.S. films. He's he's doing yeah. this coming off of knockoff, and so it's like he also casts RVD Rob Van Dam, <laughs> one of my all time favorite wrestlers. Uh, we get. Andrew Brynarski, the Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw remakes, also from The Program, one of my all-time favorite terrible sports movies. It was great. It's so good. I love that movie so much. (laughs) We get uh, Tyler Maine. We get the original Sabretooth from the X-Men movies. (laughs) Like, the cast in this movie is just, it's bonkers. I don't... I don't I don't even know what to say. Like this is folks listening, this is gonna be an episode where I'm gonna be speechless for quite a bit of it because <laughs> there's just so much going on in this movie that I don't even know how to wrap my brain around it. Legit like legitimately horror fans should check this out because you have Leatherface, Super Freddy, Kruger, Micah Myers, Tyler Bain was also Mike Myers and the Rob Zombie one, Jigsaw, and uh the the wrestler one of the wrestlers name is hellraiser which just this weird like collection of people you're like that's a lot and you know it's just all like mashed together and tracy lords yeah and on top of that tracy fucking lords is in this movie like you get tracy lords who above and beyond her infamous past uh is also like you said horror movie fans she is the bait 
in the blood rave opening <laughs> of Blade, one of the greatest opening movies of or opening scenes in a movie of all time. Like, I just don't I don't even know. I don't even know what to say about how all of this movie came together because it just blows my mind. Absolutely. And, you know, Tracy Lords, who worked with John Waters a bunch. So and, you know, a bunch of uh, Roger Corman movies and you know other works. It's just interesting to have like that background and that filmography and bring it into this. And that also lends itself uh, throughout the film into having different types of action sequences. So you would have, you know, obviously martial arts, but then you would have uh, wrestling moves and there's uh, car chases and wire work, um, even if it wasn't a martial arts scene and kind of like kid friendly action stuff. Like, Oh, so like making like, like home alone type. Oh, I messed up and took out the bad guy. And it's just these we it's just this, odd quilt of different patches that don't quite fit, but they to juxtapose them next to each other just makes them stand out. Well, and it's pretty clear that Choi Hawk had at least some affinity for Tracy Lords because she actually gets a character arc in this movie. You know, her, her, her powers, first of all, she's a chameleon, so she can disappear. So we get some really, I think, interestingly, created but poorly executed CGI fight scenes where she's invisible fighting black mask and, and other people, but she has a full legitimate character arc in this. And I actually have quite a bit of affinity for Tracy Lords. I watched a uh, old sci-fi channel show called first wave that she was on. I'm not, going to address whether I might have seen her previous work prior to that. But, uh, and she was terrific on that. I actually think Tracy Lords is a far better actress than she gets credit for. And I will give it up to Choi Hawk. He gives her a character to play here. More so than pretty much most of the other characters, certainly. And she has a motivation. Uh, she makes changes throughout. Um, she has a very defined personality. All the others, all the other wrestlers, uh, whose names are Wolf, Snake, Claw, and Iguana, um, and then Thorn is just hanging out. They don't really have that different personalities at all. They just have different animal attributes. Although I still don't know what Claw is supposed to be. It's Rob Van Dam. I don't know if he's supposed to be like a scorpion or some sort of arachnid or insect. It makes no biological sense. It would be ripped apart if it was on the old show Face Off with like makeup effects artists being like, what is going on here? <laughs> anyway, so all these wrestlers have these hybrid things who all uh, fight, by the way, at an event called Smash Mouth 2002. <laughs> That's the best thing. like, come here, see Smash Mouth. And uh, when you saw that, did you have to stop yourself from going, somebody wants <laughs> I was praying. Because um, I don't think I like noticed it the first time I watched it, or I was just like, "Oh, they probably took it from this." But then I was like, "Wait, was there a Smash Mouth performance in this movie? I don't remember." And like, it just cuts to them playing like that song again, or even like walking on the sound, like whatever that they could license. Like that'd be amazing. Just a random cut to that. There's so much of this movie to talk about, but basically set in, like in the near future in this pretend place, Beast City, with his Zeppelins all about, even though it's all. There's tons of real technology. Uh, hybrid humans are kind of known, but also secret. There's black masks around, and I have no idea why he wears a mask in this movie. 
who, what identity is he protecting? What it does nothing. It doesn't like stop bullets or like help them see stuff or anything. He just, I got to wear this mask because they did it in the last movie. And also uh, Kato wore one. So you're like, okay, fair enough. Uh, but there's just so much going on that everything, every scene has a moment where you're like, hey, why did that just happen? Or like, what, what am I supposed to take from that? It's nothing if not packed, right? Like, <laughs> there's no question. The movie is just packed with everything. I do feel like, since you mentioned him, we we should, before we get too much farther in, talk about Black Mask himself. As I said in my intro, Black Mask, this is a sequel to 1996's Black Mask starring Jet Li, who is a legend. This one, Jet Li had already made his uh, way to the U.S. at the time this was made, and he was kind of at the height of his U.S. popularity. You know, this would have come out right around the same time I think he was doing Cradle to the Grave. So, you know, he was he was kind of a thing here in the U.S., so they he didn't want to come back and do it, so they cast heretofore unknown person Andy on. I Before I say what I'm about to say, know that I really like Andy on, and I think he has grown into a very good actor and a very good action star. Man, he is about the blandest person on the face of the earth in this movie, I think. What do you think, Rob? That may be why he has a mask, to make it more visually. It's There's a very tabula rasa stuff going on with his face where just he has like no reaction to anything. Um, most action stars, specifically in like Hong Kong action, are very intense expressions, um, or they're supposed to be very stoic. And this isn't either. He's not stoic. He's just like like not phased by anything and not as if like he's like like there's a quiet strength to him he just is just doesn't seem like he's invested in any of it but he has you know some good moves uh he doesn't really one of the trivia which i didn't know about um, we saw this on imdb he didn't know martial arts so they sent him to a shaolin temple before shooting they're like all right go up there for a few weeks and then uh when you're done come back here because we gotta make this movie i was like why did you cast him then <laughs> just i mean he's Good looking, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be it, right? Like, the dude is legit uh, hot. There's no question about that. But, like, yeah. And and he was he was multilingual, which does make sense if you're making a... And this movie's clearly a multilingual production. I mean, all the yeah. Western actors speak English. It's very much like an old spaghetti Western. All the Western actors speak English. All the Asian actors speak Cantonese or... Mandarin or whatever their particular language is, and then they just dub over who needs to be dubbed over. And given that he's bilingual, he could kind of deal with that. But I will give this to Andy on. He kept up with acting. He also kept up with martial arts. He has got mm-hmm. a fight with Donnie Yen in a movie called Special ID that's just terrific. And in a movie that I'm going to talk about later on this Way later in this show, in this podcast, he stars again with Scott in Abduction, and they Mm. have a fight that is just, the movie's not great, but their fight is kind of an all-timer. But that's 15 years (laughs) after (laughs) Black Mask. And uh, yeah, he's, boy, there is just a, a black hole of charisma and uh, interesting action or acting choices in the middle of this movie because he's 
he's not even bad. I would almost prefer it if he was just bad and in a mm-hmm. way that say, like I would argue that say somebody like Rob Van Dam is in this where he's just yeah. over the top and ridiculous. Andy Ons just really unfortunately bland in the center of this movie. Totally. And it, I don't know if maybe that was when they saw what he was able to do, they kind of scaled back his character or in terms of, you know, backstory or, any story, um, but or maybe that's why they threw in the Catman turn that eventually happens to give him something to do. But it's just odd because it he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't like have any like uh, innate charisma. Um, not with uh, his romantic flirting with the female lead. Not when he's trying to befriend the kid uh, that gets involved with all this. Not when he's fighting uh, Scott Atkins. There's just never a lot of uh, emotions coming through that it just seems perfunctory and just it ultimately, as you said, is bland. So it's not like bizarre choices or like he came in being like, Oh, this is how my character acts. He's just seems uh, very tepid about these animal hybrids. And the fact that one of my favorite parts of this is that part of the villain scheme is, uh, or the wrestling villain scheme is uh, to use corporate, uh, copyright litigation to lure Black Mask. You know, to basically, like they have someone's like, "This is Black Mask." And he's like, "That's not. That's my name. Don't you can't do that." And like that's their plan to bring him into their trap. And but even then, yeah, Andy on just never really has any connection with anyone around him. Yeah, he just kind of floats through the movie for the most part. It, it's weird because you're right. You mentioned his relationship with both. Teresa Herrera, who's the the female lead, and ah, she's not great either, but they don't have any chemistry whatsoever. And then Sean Marquette, brother of one of actually an actor I really like, Chris Marquette. And Sean Marquette's gone on to have a very successful career. He's been on the Goldbergs for five years, but Jesus Christ, he's bad in this. And he and Andy on have no connection whatsoever. No, and it's to the point where they're, it's actually mildly creepy because there's no connection. There's no, I'm looking out for you, or the kid being like, ah, respect you so much, Black Mask, or Andy Young, because he doesn't, until he actually sees that he's Black Mask, doesn't really know it, I guess. But because there's no emotional connection, there's just something unsettling when he's like, where are you going to sleep tonight? And like, there's, because there's just dead. You're like, what, what's happening? Like, what's going to happen here? Or he's like, here, I gave you a bunch of money. Good luck. You know, it's just because there's such a uh, lack of, uh, you know, lack of any sort of like stimuli in their uh, chemistry with each other. You're just, you it just becomes like a slightly odd relationship. You're like, I don't get what's happening. You're like, none of them, they seem like they're supposed to like each other or care about each other. And they're doing, or they're making like actions that show that, but you could not tell it from their faces, how they speak to each other, anything. They're just like, all right, let's do this then. Hey, ends up becoming a big problem because because I don't have any investment in those characters when we get to the climax and we've got Black Mask fighting not just the wrestlers but Scott Adkins, Dr. Lang and all of this stuff we keep cutting back to Sean Marquette and Teresa Herrera having their own little adventure where they're you know he's trying to drop pipes on the people and it's just I hated that. I I didn't I didn't care. I did, I wanted to get back to watching the kicking. Like it 
it, it just slowed that whole climax down for me. It would definitely do that. It's definitely uh, throws off the rhythm. I enjoy it. Not ironically, but just like as the absurdity, because it's essentially it's like one of those like early nineties, like kid action comedies, like essentially, you know, home alone, three ninjas remote, all of those that would always have like kids uh, being like, after they did something to a villain, they go like, yes. And like pump their fists, like that type of film. And they just like throw it in the middle of these two, like martial artists battling out over a genetic bomb. You're like, that's, those are not really congruent. What's what are we doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Like I would totally watch Choi Hawk's home alone, but not Ooh. in this movie. <laughs> like, like, like that's the thing is it's like, there's just decisions that are, and I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but there's decisions made in this movie that I just cannot wrap my brain around. And it just keeps like piling up in different ways. And there's always, like I said, in a scene, there's always something, a scene or a sequence that just makes you stop for a second. Like, wait, why? Or what did I miss? Or it just, you take a note of it and that's what makes it stand out. And that's what, Again, I don't think it's a good movie, but I think it's very enjoyable because there's all these moments you're like, wait, what is this happening? What's going on here? One thing that's interesting, so I watched it uh, in English, but with uh, English subtitles for the Cantonese version, and the, those are totally different movies. Uh, Dr. Marco has like all these quips throughout, and that uh, male scientist she's working with is constantly trying to uh, hit on her, which he does in the English version, but she keeps telling him to basically like go kill himself. <laughs> she's like, why don't you drop dead? And I'm like, that's not what's happening in the, in the, with these English subtitles for the Cantonese version. Tobin Bell is referred to as grandfather instead of Moloch. John Polito is referred to as dad and all the wrestlers call each other family. And I was, that's not what's happening. Why is this? Although it does lead to a great line, which is black mask going, who was this grandfather? Which I think is kind of great. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to watch it again, just with those (laughs) subtitles on. Um, the last words in subtitles, it literally doesn't give anything away because it makes no sense. So it's the speech where, you know, Black Mask is going up and says on set and he's like, time for me to keep fighting against these stuff. The very last sentence in the subtitles for Cantonese is turn on your phones now with an exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that just, that like makes the movie, uh, changes everything for me. I might have to rewatch it. I just like, I assume it's because it doesn't relate to what's said before. So I feel it's doing like being like, yeah, you can go now. We're done here. Like you can go on. Like, I appreciate you turning him off during it, but just turn back on. We're, you've seen all you're going to see here. It, I did what I could. <laughs> so we are here on a Scott Adkins podcast. So I've got mm-hmm. to ask you about Scott. You know, we talked about him a little bit with the steampunk goggles, but what do you think about Scott in this movie? He's a great over the top villain, but he's not, he's used too sparingly because he's gone for, he's gone for the majority. He basically has, I think like four scenes maybe. And I, it could be, you know, I'm just counting. There's just not that much. Um, and a bunch of those scenes, just him talking to folks and which is fine usually, but not with this dialogue that's written the opening. I, I didn't write one note when I was watching. I was like, this is the opening when he's like talking to that weird vat 
of whatever. I was like, this is just like uh, David Lynch's Dune, how that opens with like this weird creature coming forward in a tank being like, you got to go do this thing. So that's right. I'm comparing Black Mass 2 to David Lynch. Hot takes. <laughs> Wouldn't have had you on the show otherwise, man. I would have been disappointed if you hadn't, to be honest with you. Yeah, but overall, um, yeah, Scott Atkins just doesn't have a lot to do. He, I don't get why he's a doctor. Was he a doctor of? He never uses anything. I guess the closest when he says, when he tells Tobin Bell, like why his genetic tests aren't working the way they should. There's no real reason for it. At the end, he has this weird He-Man, G.I. Joe metal thing that I do not understand what that is. And a lot of the final fight is pretty good, but I do not understand what happens at the end. Like, I could not figure it out. And I kept, like, rewinding and playing, like, wait, why is this? Like, everything about, like, heat, the heat to melt the statue, um, and then it gets sucked up, and then all this stuff. And it kind of just brought me back to the fact that I was like, I don't really know their powers. Like I get they're strong and they can fight well and they're fast, but do they have something else going on? And it didn't really ever. And that's when like, you know, at the end they start showing again, this like heightened sort of like anime or like uh, brawler video game type abilities. All of a sudden you're like, was this always what they could do? And again, you've, you constantly feel like you miss something or because it's black mass too. You're like, Oh, this must be explained in the other movie. It is not. So you're just like, what? <laughs> it is not. It is most assuredly not. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird. And there is no setup for it. Um, but yeah, so Scott Atkins, I think he was having fun with it. I would hope he's was having fun with it just because he got to be pretty goofy. I liked him interacting with Tyler Maine. And Tobin Bell, that was pretty funny just to see all these different styles at work. Also, because like Tyler Maine in it has like this weird uh, third act Conan the Barbarian uh, face paint for discernibly no reason. And then he can also morph. And it's just funny to have that against, you know, someone that's like a Dr. Mindbender from G.I. Joe. And you're like, what is going on here? And I just have the same idea that like at some point, you know, in between takes, like the three of them just looked at each other and just like shrugged. And like, I, I assume this makes will make sense in the edit. I'm like, no, you assume wrong. He's totally Dr. Mindbender. Holy shit, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Like, you said that, and I was like, oh, like, I don't know if Choi Hawk was a G.I. Joe fan or not, but holy shit, with the beard and the mustache and the bald head, he's totally Dr. Mindbender. Like, that is 100% what he's playing in this movie, is Dr. Mindbender from G.I. Joe. Well, we can't have a monocle, so what else could we have? Uh, giant steampunk glasses that cover up most of the face of this very handsome and uh, actor that uses his eyes a lot to convey emotions. Perfect. Run with it. <laughs> I will admit, there's one line he has that just I love, and it's one of the ones where I think is, as somebody who has to take kind of a broad perspective on his career, uh, lays the groundwork for Mike Fallon in Accident Man or French in the Debt Collector movies. And that's it's at the start when he's trying to bring in Black Mask and he finds him and then Black Mask escapes and blows up their stuff and he just, his henchman comes up and Scott just goes, ungrateful shit. And like the <laughs> way he delivers that line like it's not unintentional. It's not ironic. Like it's a legitimately funny line and a funny delivery. And, uh, and so I think that's, 
the movie's kind of worth it just for that scene because then you can kind of see what he's going to grow into as he goes on longer. What's annoying about that part is you think that's going to set up the the movie. Like, that's okay. This is what this movie's going to be about. Um, instead, it goes off into these, uh, like, manimal hybrids uh, that basically that he, <laughs> Black Mask, has to fight and also becomes one of them, but only in, like, four scenes. But, and then it comes back to it, and it's this weird kind of, what they kept trying to do with Batman movies in the 90s, where they would have, like, two sets of villains, and eventually they collide. But they would collide in the second act. Like, they'd be like, oh, let's join up, you know, Riddler and Two-Face to work together, or Mr. Freeze, sorry. It's like, he was a doctor, though. But Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy, like, working together, um, you know, those things would eventually collide. And this one... It's until like the beginning of the third act where uh, Dodger Lane comes up. He's like, okay, I'll work with you and your uh, menagerie of freaks. Let's make sure this happens. And you're like, what? Like, you just want more, like, not just because you, I like, or we like uh, Scott Atkins, but you also want more Dodger Lane because he's so interesting and he does have like that hook that you're like, wait, this, like, he seems like he pairs well with Black Mask in terms of their moves. He's very uh, memorable in appearance. He, is a man of few words, but those all those words are just this weird sort of like haughty expression where he's just like, he kind of like is looking down on everyone, but he can't really tell why or what's going on with anything. <laughs> Again, complete lack of backstory. You just know like, all right, this is happening. Even though this thing has uh, like a prologue, like a setup of what's happening in this world, it has a movie before it. And yet you still, when you go into it, you're like, what, who is this? And all you know is like, ah, they're making modifications to genetics. Everything's a transhuman now, but people don't know about it, but it's also happening all over. You're like, what? I do not understand. Yeah. And you're right. Cause you almost forget. He cuts such an impressive presence, goofy though he may be with the bald head and the steampunk goggles and the, and he cuts such an impressive presence in that opening part of the movie. And then you almost forget that he's even in the movie until he shows up in the third act because he just disappears. And I got to be honest, I think that is maybe the biggest of many flaws in this movie, maybe the biggest one. Because if you pitched me on Dr. Lang versus Black Mask as a movie where they're just periodically like, Think kind of this is going to be a weird stretch, but think like how Jason Statham keeps showing up in Furious 7. You know, yeah. they, they like they've all got stuff and then he shows up and just fucks everything up. If you had this movie where like every 15 minutes, Dr. Lang was just showing up and making a mess out of shit for Black Mask. Man, I'm I'm not mad about that movie. Like, like I'm I, I'm in to watching that movie, but he disappears for just so long that when he does show up again, you're like, all oh, right, this guy's kind of cool. And like you said, not just because we like Scott Adkins, because at the time I first watched this, I didn't know who Scott Adkins was, yeah. but he was still an impressive presence in that movie. And his character is like, they're all, <laughs> Obviously, all the characters are for some heightened world or, like, basically, like, the Giver or, like, some comic book or something like that. But the energy that he gives off in this is, like, this very weird type of energy. Like, so everyone's from a different movie that's in this movie. But, like, which makes it work well with any contrast with these, you know, um, 
uh, Men uh, wrestlers and like Tobin Bell, mad scientist. And it's just this other person who's both apparently a mad scientist, I guess, and uh, a badass. And so it kind of works well when he's paired against these people. And then you're like, why wasn't this happening earlier? Or like, they don't necessarily even have to interact. Just have him show up constantly and be like, just one other problem black mask has to deal with. Instead it's black mask constantly. Like, oh, I don't know how to deal with these wrestlers. Like, you know where they are. They're in smash mouth. Go, go to Smash Mouth. That's where they are. You know this. Take care of it. <laughs> yeah, you just you watch this movie and you just want to put your finger and your thumb in the shape of an L on your forehead to Black Mask <laughs> because... <laughs> Rob, oh, years. <laughs> we have talked about this for almost an hour, so I think we need to start winding down a little bit here. We've talked a lot about high... Normally I ask people for high points and low points, but I feel like we've kind of <laughs> covered that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I am going to ask you, uh, so honest recommendation, would you recommend people watch Black Mask 2? I would, with the caveat of it's probably more fun with other people. Um, you have to have a certain tolerance for randomness or bad movies. You have to enjoy those. Or just things you're like, what is happening? And that, that's why I say with other people, it's more fun. Because you can all like turn to each other and like, wait, why did that happen? And then everyone's like, I don't know either. And you kind of like, can make jokes about it. And there's also, you know, some of the practical effects. It's actually not that bad. Iguana looks better than the lizard in Amazing Spider-Man, which I was kind of blown away by. There's like every few minutes or at least at the front, uh, the beginning of that movie, it's just a bunch of character actors and like cult figures like, all of a sudden like showing up. You're like, he's in this movie? She? Okay. So I do think there's something about it. I don't think you will go walk away from seeing it by being like that. That was great. I think you'll just walk away being like, I won't forget that. And for good or ill, that will linger with me for a while, which I think is good. You know, you brought up one thing I do want to say before I (laughs) say whether I recommend it. You're right. I think the CGI in this movie is borderline unconscionably bad. The creature effects, the makeup effects. So the transformations are awful. But when they Mm -hmm. transform, they then become practical Steve Wang, Screaming Mad George kind of practical creature effects. And they're pretty damn good. Like the makeup effects are not not bad in this movie at all. I uh, (laughs) I was really torn. So (laughs) this is why I wanted you. You know, I said in my intro. I don't love this movie. I brought you on because I wanted you to show me what I'm missing. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. After having talked to you about this movie, I have more, I think affinity for it than I did when we started recording. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's bad. It's a bad movie. Like there's no way around it. It's a bad movie, but it is the kind of bad movie that, like I said earlier, that only a, bonkers next level genius like Choi mm-hmm. Hawk could make. I think if this is not your first Choi Hawk movie, maybe skip it. If it is your mm-hmm. first, it might be good because then it's like, well, now I can show you once upon a time in China and show you what his <laughs> actual talent looks like. It's all uphill from there. <laughs> I would also ask if you want to watch this how high and or drunk are you because the higher on both levels is just going to increase the enjoyment of the movie and like you said rob watching it with people with other people and i'm not a big fan of like the ironically watching movies to make fun of them 
But I don't think you have to do that here because this movie's so bananas that you almost can't make fun of it because it's doing right. so much crazy shit that you're. I don't even know how you would try and like do an MST3K thing on this movie. It would be really hard because there's so many constant changes that even if you made it like trying to make a joke, it would just move on to something else that you have to comment on. So it's not so much that you'd be making jokes about it with other people. It's more that you would, again, be like uh, a bunch of witnesses to something bizarre happening, some incident that's happening to you all at the same time, some shared trauma. And you're all being like, I don't understand. Just you want to look around at people like by myself watching it this time. I looked around my living room. There's no one else here. I'm in isolation. It's a pandemic. I looked around and just be like, can you believe this? I had no one to look around at, but I was just like, does anyone, has everyone seen this? Am I like, what's happening to me? So I think that's why. And it's also not a played out bad movie too, which I think is important. Like there's a lot of mo- bad movies that everyone always recommends or people have seen so many times or has all those screenings, but this is one that people don't really talk about. And it, therefore you can kind of uh, find it on your own and not have it ruined for you or not have everyone, you know, quoting lines or whatever, or throwing spoons at it or whatever they do. Yeah, I I agree. I'm actually I folks, I I would not have thought this at the start of recording this episode. I'm going to give this it's the softest of all possible <laughs> recommendations. But I am I'm going to give this one a soft recommendation. A, I think as we talked about, he's poorly used, but mm-hmm. Adkins is pretty baller in this movie, man. I I just I if we had Halloween this year, we're recording this in 2020, you all know what 2020 is like. If we had Halloween, I swear to god, I would be Dr. Lang for my Halloween oh, costume god. this year. He's baller. <laughs> Tracy Lords is great. Yeah. It's a bonkers movie. I'm going to give it a soft recommendation knowing that it's an absolutely astronomically crazy, terrible movie, but I'm still going to give it a soft recommendation. Yeah. It's something, it's a car crash. You can't look away from it or train wreck. And there's so much we haven't even discussed yet, but we don't have the time to, but just know that there's always something that there's always something happening that doesn't really make sense or really connect or is, you think is like, Oh, that's a clever way or that's a good direction to go. And then like, now we're going this other way. It's also something to note that there's a lot of uh, these types of sci-fi action movies that you could just not look up or, you know, just check out every now and then while you're doing something else. You, if you start off this or you think you'll like just have it on the background, you will get sucked into it just because you're like, wait, did I, when I was looking down, did I miss something? And then you'll just keep watching it and it'll just get weirder and weirder. And then, so yeah. I'll take the victory. Yeah, I mean, the damn thing starts with Adkins in that getup talking to a vat of goo, like you said, just like Dune. Like, like I don't know how you make it 30 seconds into this movie without being like, um, you're either in or you're out. Like, I, God love Troy Hawk, because that opening scene, you're either in or out after that scene. Yeah. There's no, like, that's the movie, man. <laughs> like, make your decisions. But, uh... Yeah, take the win because uh, I I'm gonna give this one a I'm gonna give this one a wreck. I think people should check it out at least once. I don't think they should watch it over and over again, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say they should check it out at least once. Um, I'm looking forward to eventually us recording a commentary for when it inevitably hits Criterion. Uh, I think it'll be very fun for us. We'll have a lot to uh, to talk about, and also uh, turn on your phones now. <laughs> 
Rob, <laughs> other Adkins movies, just quickly, other Adkins movies that you'd recommend. You mentioned some. What are some other ones? You know, I've gotten some people who are saying they've never really watched Scott Adkins movies before. So what movies would you throw their direction that they should check out? Uh, Accident Man, uh, Debt Collector. Um, I haven't seen the sequel yet, but hopefully that's good. Uh, obviously, the Boyka movies. And um, he's not used to great effect, but he has one of the most memorable scenes in Doctor Strange, So, uh, which I'm sure people have seen. I wouldn't say I see that for Scott Atkins, but next time you're watching, I really pay attention to the scene where he's astral projecting, fighting uh, Doctor Strange. And you're like, oh, that's actually clever use. Yeah, they actually, you know, as somebody who is, and, and I, I will have, uh, just as again, as a teaser, folks, I got Daniel Epler coming on to talk that one. I was ride or die for Adkins by that point. Um, mm-hmm. And I was pretty, you know, given that he was in a major Hollywood movie, I'm not going to lie. I was pretty pleased with how he was used in Doctor Strange. It was more than what we usually get when he shows up in a major Hollywood movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Contrast that with X-Men Origins or something like that. Or, you know, um, he's used pretty well in Born Ultimatum, but not great overall but um and i also like the fact that because of he doesn't really have dialogue and he has all that uh makeup on his face that could probably if he chose to he could have another role in the mcu and people wouldn't really notice so you know if that was something that interested him maybe he'll come back and we can get more scott atkins fighting people fighting costumed uh heroes because uh, he does it quite well in black mask too as so there you go he was my pick for Iron Fist. I was really disappointed that because uh, I thought he would have made a terrific Iron Fist and instead we got not a terrific yeah. Iron Fist. <laughs> uh, not Scott Atkins. <laughs> all right, Rob, plug some shit. Where can people find you? I know you're all over the place. So where can people find you? Uh, the best way is uh, follow me on Twitter at Neurotic Monkey. Uh, I write for Daily Grant House bullseye which is b-u-l-l-z dash e-y-e dot com uh it's not the site you're thinking it is it's the other one and uh you know just basically popping up here and there but the best way to find me is on twitter and you know follow me and tell or not even follow me just tell me why uh you think there's something very wrong with me for enjoying this movie as much as i do (laughs) uh yeah don't don't tell him that folks it's uh (laughs) it's there's nothing wrong with him. We all have those movies. We all have our, our secret shame movies. Man, thank you so much for coming on this show. I had a blast talking this movie with you. We may or may not be able to get you back on, but I, uh, since I am on multiple podcasts, I'm going to get you back on some podcast that I do at some point because I had so much fun talking to you about this that uh, I cannot just let this be a one-off. So, uh <laughs> Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, folks, I am going to lead us out. But uh, this has been Rob Dean and me talking Black Mask 2. And that will do it for this episode of Adkins Undisputed. I hope you've enjoyed this dive into 2003's Black Mask 2 City of Masks. And I hope you'll stick around for what we've got in the pipe. Thanks again to my special guest, Rob Dean. You can follow me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and on Letterboxd. You can find my work with Dana Buckler at Linktree slash Dana Buckler Show, where we talk about all sorts of movies, almost none of them Scott Adkins related. 
You can follow the show at Adkins Podcast on Twitter and at Adkins Undisputed on Instagram. You can email me at AdkinsUndisputedPod at gmail.com. And if you don't want to try and remember all that, you can find all of these links at Linktree slash Adkins Undisputed. This podcast is available on every major podcast app of your choice. If you cannot find it or it's not on yours, reach out to me, let me know. I'll make sure it shows up there. As I've said before, we're skipping over Extreme Challenge for a bit, so next week we'll be covering a massively important film in the career of Young Adkins. It's the first movie where we really get to see what he can do and get a true taste of the action star he would become. It's also the first time he teamed up with Isaac Florentine, the beginning of a fruitful partnership that would yield amazing things over the next 15 years. That's right, we'll be talking 2003's Special Forces. And I'm so excited about my guest that I can barely contain myself. Joining me to talk about the film will be former soldier, writer about all things action, all-around amazing dude, Vice Victus. I'll also be covering some more TV appearances, including Scott's turn in Mutant X and his stint on EastEnders. It's going to be a big episode, probably our biggest one yet. So, please bring your ears your podcast app of choice, and your fucking champion to the next episode of Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world.